Welcome to episode 49 of the RSA Resident and Student podcast series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Joshua Novi, student at University of Miami Miller School of Medicine and vice president of the RSA Medical Student Council, speaks with Dr. Robert McNamara, chairman at Temple University and a past president and founding member of AAEM. Today, Mr. Novi and Dr. McNamara discuss novel job demands, freestanding EDs, telemedicine, supervision of APPs, and coverage of inpatient units. Aloha, everyone, and welcome to this episode of AAEM RSA podcast series. I'm Joshua Novi, and today I'm joined by Dr. Robert McNamara, past president of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine and chair of emergency medicine at Temple University Lewis Katz School of Medicine and chief medical officer of Temple University Physicians. Thank you for being us with, a, with us today, Dr. McNamara. It's my pleasure to be here. It's always good to talk to the residents, the future of the specialty. Thank you. Emergency medicine has not been immune to the transformation of medical practice over the past decade, and the landscape of job opportunities for healthcare professionals in acute care has likewise evolved in this time. Freestanding emergency departments have been multiplying in states where they are permitted to operate, and approximately 32 states as of this podcast. Dr. McNamara, could you share with us what nuances the setting of freestanding emergency departments introduces into the workflow for an emergency physician? So as you mentioned, depending on the where you go to practice, you may encounter freestandings as a job opportunity, as part of your job. Uh, when you're in residency, you know, a lot of people train at traditional academic medical centers. And, you know, we sometimes have experience with semi-freestanding EDs where, you know, it might be a, for instance, at our program at Temple, there's a community hospital that they still have inpatient beds at, but they're really just like an OBS unit. So it's almost a freestanding emergency department. But as we have seen in places like Texas, there's been a boom of freestanding EDs. Still, the vast majority are affiliated with hospitals where they're, you know, owned by a hospital. So that's a little different nuance. And often there you'll not just work at the freestanding, you also work at the main hospital. But then there are the pure freestanding EDs that are that's it. That's all they do is they just receive ambulances, they treat patients, and operate as an emergency department. So it's a couple of key issues for emergency physicians, emergency medicine. I mean, when you look at the pros of it, in general, because the freestanding, in addition to the physician charge, there's also the facility charge, which they can use that to support the uh, pay to the emergency physician. So the general word is you can see less patients. They're staffed at like, you know, one patient per hour is what you're expected to see versus you know, the typical two in an ED, have better hours, see less patients, and make more money. So it's a very attractive option. The concerns are, you know, obviously, if it's freestanding, specialty backup, you know, what if a difficult delivery rolls in there and you don't have anybody to call down to help you out? I think the, the key one for me is a deterioration of skills. You know, seeing one patient per hour, how many airways are you going to do? You know, that's a big concern. So doing full-time freestanding practice, you know, something's got to be carefully evaluated. I, I know why people do it. The freestanding sites, new facilities, seeing less patients, theoretically less hassles, better operations, you know, compared to some of the places that we train at. 
you know, overcrowding, under-resourced. They can be very attractive options. We're seeing trends, you know, the, the biggest provider of freestanding EDs, Adeptus, went bankrupt. So it's not the panacea that people thought it was. Some of them are physician-owned where, you know, you're going to get a fair deal. But other ones, they're going to they fall the way of other corporate emergency departments type stuff where you're, you're really just making money for somebody else. So you have to evaluate each situation individually. But they're pretty much here to stay. Just a couple of days ago, the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission recommended decreasing payments to freestanding centers. So that's going to affect the market a little bit. So I think they'll still exist. Some of them, you know, they're going to be affiliated with hospitals where it just doesn't make sense to have a lot of inpatient beds at, at a site and anybody gets admitted gets transferred to the larger hospital. Residents should be aware of them. Evaluate them carefully. Be careful of, you know, doing it full-time practice early on in your career. And, you know, maybe later on, that's kind of a wind-down strategy. You know, we kind of see that with some emergency physicians working in urgent cares. You know, where you're okay giving up the, the tubes, the, the codes, the trauma cases, and you want to ease out on your career. So they're there. You ought to know about them. So I've personally studied the freestanding emergency department as a new as a new model, emerging model of a healthcare delivery. Do you have any thoughts on what freestanding emergency departments can do for overcrowding in hospital-based emergency departments? Uh, the the ultimate question. So would a freestanding siphon off enough patients to decompress another emergency department? Well, well I can tell you the situation that we're at. You know where we essentially have almost a freestanding ED, keeping that open, spared the main hospital. If that was shut down, there, you know, we're seeing 50,000 patients at this satellite site. We would get crushed at Temple if, if that ED hadn't been kept open. But the ones that are popping up, I mean, it's mostly to make money, right? They're going to suburban areas, and are they really decreasing ED visits? I don't think I've seen that data. I mean, we know that urgent carers aren't decreasing ED visits, a lot of times when we create new healthcare venues for people to be taken care of, it just increases the amount of medical care that we give. So theoretically, you know, you could have a freestanding that could be used to, but then the question is, well, maybe you should expand the current ED that you have rather than build a freestanding. And I've not really seen that as a strategy that somebody said, you know, we want to decompress our ED to build it. Certainly people put them up because they, they want to get business. You know, why go to the ED and wait six hours? You can come to our freestanding and walk right in. That's an attractive model. I don't see anything really decreasing overcrowding. We've been at this game since the 80s. We're still overcrowded. You know, hospitals are closing. I doubt freestanding is going to make a huge impact. Maybe in some local circumstances they could. Okay. Let's change gears a little bit here. So telemedicine is a venture that's been leveraging technology to improve access to specialist care in otherwise underserved areas, as well as to provide the expertise of healthcare professionals where staffing shortages might exist, for instance, in critical access hospitals. Given the hands-on technical nature of emergency medicine, though, what challenges do you predict emergency physicians may face as the use of telemedicine becomes more widespread? You know, you mentioned a couple of benefits. I mean, Obviously, telemedicine is here, and it's here to stay, and a lot of us may already be familiar with it. I mean, the core uses of, like, stroke evaluation, right? Do we give this person TPA or not? Having, you know, your neurology that you don't have on site, doing an assessment of the patient. 
I mean, that's been shown to be a pretty effective model in, in many areas. So, all right, you know, we've examined the patient via telemedicine. You know, we confirm this is a TPA candidate. I don't want to get into that whole debate. They're using it some places for trauma. You know, should we transfer to the trauma center? You know, do they need to get upgraded to the level one? They're doing telemedicine in Texas for that kind of stuff. And, you know, as you're saying, the rural sites, the smaller sites, it has the potential to, yeah, they need to come. I know they could probably stay at your local site. So it's going to be there. You know, it's key. You know, you're seeing that in ICUs too, not just emergency departments. The most common thing I think that's interfacing with emergency medicine, I mean, obviously, you know, if you're supporting a rural site, now this in Mississippi they're doing this, where the board-certified emergency physicians at the academic center are helping the smaller centers with cases. We want to talk to you about a case. We're not sure we need to ship it to you or not. Can you give us some advice? That obviously, you know, depending on where you're at, the regulations, you know, you, you could be part of that patient care. So that creates, obviously, do I have liability risk? You know, how's this going to be managed? You know, how's the billing handled? How's that going on? What I'm mostly saying is health systems see telehealth as a way to deliver urgent care, right, high-tech urgent care. So you just dial a number and you get face-to-face with a doctor. Emergency physicians are being asked to play those roles in certain health systems, and you're not going to make a lot of money doing it, right, for the professional charge. It just isn't there to, enough to support a board-certified emergency physician. So it's, this is being subsidized as a loss leader. The health system's thinking, all right, you know, we'll get them to interface with an EM doc, and maybe there'll be a referral to cardiology, orthopedics down the road. They'll start using our health system. So, again, it's, it's a role. It's not traditionally what we're trained for in emergency medicine, but again, as, you know, a sidelight, like do a shift a week doing that, you know, nice decompression from being in the pit. So I think there's a role for it, but you just kind of, it, it depends on, you know, exactly how you're going to do it. There's some cool stuff going on. Like they gave an award to uh, New York Presby Cornell for doing telemedicine after they triage somebody. Essentially, they did urgent care telemedicine in the ED itself. And you know, they registered a patient. You got the medical screening exam, and then it looked like there's somebody who could be done by telehealth, like an urgent care, level four or five visit, and they would just treat them by telehealth and send them home. They don't need to go back to the back part of the ED to see a doc who's on duty. So that's a pretty cool thing. And then in Texas, they're also doing EMS, where EMS is going to a house and saying, Doc, we got a patient here. You know, can you interface with us? Do we need to transport this person? And with that system, they're actually well, they don't need to come to the ED, but we're going to set them up for an appointment with, you know, so-and-so the next day. So it has potential at the population health level. And, you know, we would certainly play a role in those kind of decisions, like do they need to come to the ED or not? So it's there. I don't think it's going to be a barrier to us. I mean, we can take care of anybody anywhere, you know, doing it over a video screen. It's not going to be a big deal for us. Okay. So another practice setting question that I have for you, changes in the landscape of what emergency physicians are doing on a daily basis these days. We have advanced practice providers now, APPs. These are your physician's assistants, your nurse practitioners. And in recent years, they've enjoyed a growing role in the emergency department with a lot of hospitals and healthcare networks looking to them as a low-cost labor force. Still, the buck ends with the emergency medicine physician who has to sign off on the exam, has to sign off on the disposition, et cetera. And in some circumstances, the emergency physician can be viewed as a staff manager in settings with the employment of 
these uh, advanced practice providers. So for the emergency physician, what is the benefit of having an advanced practice provider workforce in their AD? And is this creating new challenges as well? Well, so advanced practice providers are here to stay. This is an area, you know, certainly of concern for students, residents. You know, what is their role and are they going to be competing with me? You know, how are these things going to go? How is this going to affect my future? So there's a couple of different things that, you know, the academy has dealt with. You know, there's a current issue, not just emergency medicine, not just the academy, but, you know, your state medical society, the AMA. There's a whole group of physicians for patient protection about independent practice for nurse practitioners and PAs. There is a body of thought out there that a PA can work alone in an emergency department without physician presence. AM has a position statement saying there always needs to be a physician there when a PA is on duty. But the reality is the business people that run it, it's, you know, PAs are cheaper. They generate professional bills. It's, they can make more money sometimes when a PA sees a patient than a physician. Now, private practices use PAs. Most places use PAs. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that if you have a low acuity case, having a board-certified physician see a suture removal doesn't make any sense, you know, having, or even the sore throat. I mean, you can say, well, you know, we're not going to get reimbursed a lot for that. Let's use a lower-cost provider to deliver that care. It gets into the gray zone when PAs are working for the company. You don't really have control. They start seeing sicker patients doing procedures. They realize they have more autonomy. You know, I don't need to present the case to the physician. And we see situations where the company says, you got to sign off on all the PA charts. You sign your name to that chart. If it, there's a bad outcome, you're part of it. They're going to look and they're going to see Dr. McNamara's name on the chart. And then what was my role there? So there's two different involves. If you actually see the patient face-to-face, -face, you significantly participate and say, you know, you write a note saying, you know, I saw this patient, the PA saw them primarily. It's kind of like with a resident, you supervise it. That chart can generally build at 100% of the physician charge. If you just say, I was available to the PA if they had any questions, that's built like at 85%. But even when you do that 85% sign-off, you've theoretically reviewed that chart and you've said, you know, I didn't see any issues needing me to intervene. Now, a lot of times you're signing those charts after the shift. All right, and then you got to have a system in place to say, whoa, you know, the PA saw this case, and I looked at the vitals, and they were abnormal, and, you know, we got to call them back. You know, if it goes south, they're going to try to name everybody. Okay, so your name's on a chart. You're going to potentially be liable, and you got to really be clear as to how that's going to be meted out at the end of the day. If you're going to be responsible for everything they do, then you got to say to yourself, do I want to be more involved in these cases? Unfortunately, in some of the corporate arrangements, you don't have the time. Okay, you're working with two PAs, and you're seeing your own patients. You're being pressured for your own metrics. And, you know, we hear from docs very distressed that I'm forced to sign the charts. I don't have time to see these people. You know, I don't want to work in this kind of, but I'm told this is part of my job responsibility. That's, that's dangerous. They're here to stay. They're not going anywhere. You just got to be really careful. You know, what does your signature mean? What are your protections? How will these things be, you know, judged if, if there is a bad outcome? Every state has little variations. You're going to be in that situation. You really should find out what the state law is on your PAs and what supervision means, what it doesn't. 
And then, you know, for the specialty as a whole, it's, it's a big issue. Will cheap labor sounds good for the businessman? Is that good for the patient? Is that good for you as the physician? You know, we fought the whole battle of family practitioners are cheaper labor than board-certified emergency physicians. You know, we don't want them working in the emergency department, but, but then we allow PAs to do it. So it's a controversial issue. You just got to know that when you sign them, sign those charts, you are showing some involvement. And I think you, you said something in there that really resonates with me, and I think in general is just good advice for life, is always keep in mind what does your signature mean. We have we have a, a little bit of time left here, and I want to ask one more question. And this is about flow and process improvement in the emergency department. When you're implementing flow changes or creating new practice protocols in the emergency department, maybe something born from a process improvement project that a resident did, for example, typically for those measures to be successful in their implementation, you need to make sure all staff involved in that, that workflow are aligned with the goal, and that can be challenging at times. So what advice do you have for managers and directors in the emergency department to align staff with a bigger picture goal of process improvement? Well, when you have your idea of what you think you want to be an improvement, even though you know what should be done, get the staff involved in developing the idea, even though you know what the end game is going to be. Like, all right, we want to do triage differently. You got to get the people, the frontline staff, you got to get your nursing staff engaged and sit them down, get, get them in to have their input before you enact a new process. If you just say, hey, we're the docs, this is the way we should do it, it chances are it's gonna fail. Because you know, whenever you change anybody's work patterns, they're gonna feel threatened. So it's, it's a matter like getting off site or picking a conference room and just laying down, here's the problem, we're not triaging efficiently. Or you know, once we admit a patient, it takes too long to get them upstairs. You have to get all the players at the table, get representatives from the frontline nursing staff, the transporters, the PCAs, get them to help you build the process, and you got it. You know, you generally have an idea of what you want to do at the end of the day, but their input is all invaluable. They'll tell you stuff that, oh, this is the reason this doesn't happen. Nobody ever asked this. So I think it's good to get buy-in, have them part of the planning process before you do this. Just don't dictate it from up on high, because then whenever that comes down, it's, it's harder to get, get it to work. All right. Well, thank you for taking the time to spend your afternoon with us, Dr. McNamara. It's been a genuine pleasure. Okay, thanks. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website, www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.